0: So go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be at. And we are continuing our series, Refocus. We're looking at the account of the Gospels and seeking to get a clear view of Christ, get a clear view of uh, who He is, what he, uh, what He came to do, what He expects out of us as His followers. And so over the past couple of weeks we've been looking at Jesus and the events surrounding the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus went up on the mountain. He took on his glorified form, and uh, some of the disciples were able to witness that. And whenever they were on top of the mountain, whenever all these great things were going on, Peter, James, and John blew it, just to put it bluntly. Uh, They had the opportunity to see great things, to experience great things, and they fell asleep. They didn't value the, the spiritual things that was going on, and whenever they did wake up, uh, they said some foolish things. And the lesson that we learned from them up there is that uh, while we are uh, on this earth, while we are seeking to, to follow after Christ, it is a lot more important that we follow him and that we learn of him, that we pay attention to him, uh, rather than just seek to be religious or seek to uh, do things that this world expects of us. Uh, In the valley below, uh, we learned how to live down here while he is up there, and we know that he has went away to prepare a place for us. He's coming again to receive us unto himself, but while we are here, he has given us a purpose. He's given us a job to do. We are his representatives. We are ambassadors for Christ, and we are often tempted to, uh, uh, to try to uh, live the Christian life by our own strength and by our own power. And if that's what we do, we'll do like the disciples and we'll fail down there too. Because the disciples, while they were in the valley, they had the religious leaders around them questioning them and putting them to the test. And they had the man with the, the child with the possess, demon possession. They were unable to help him. They were unable to, to face the religious leaders. And whenever Jesus came down... Uh, he pointed out to them it was because they were depending upon self and not on him. Their eyes were on the problems, their eyes were on the circumstances, and their eyes were on themselves. And so rather than uh, seeking after him, depending on his power and his ability, they were depending on their own and they failed. You're going to follow the Lord. If you're going to uh, make any difference for him, your eyes must be on him. Not on the problems, not on self. You must be depending on him and not on the flesh. And so where we're at today in Matthew chapter 18, uh, after the mountain, they came down and they were uh, traveling one to the next place. They were going back to Capernaum. And as is often the case, they traveled and Jesus taught as he traveled with them. They spent a lot of time walking. If you look and you trace all the different movements, uh, this was before cars. They didn't have a caravan of camels or horses or anything. They walked everywhere, spent lots of time walking <laughs> and it was valuable time just going about with teaching and whatnot and so Jesus had been teaching the disciples that he was getting ready to be betrayed getting ready to be crucified and dying and being buried and raising again the third day this is a conversation Jesus was having with his disciples that should have got their attention right if the one that you've been following for years if the one that your hope was in, the one that you were expecting to become king and to rule under him, if he says, I'm getting ready to be uh, betrayed and I'm getting ready to be killed, don't you think your ears would perk up a little bit? Okay, but apparently it fell on deaf ears. They didn't pay any attention to this because we get a, a little insight in the passage that we're going to be in today, that as they were traveling along, rather than listening to him teach, rather than taking note of their failures and the things that they have just went through, they are arguing with each other about who is going to be the greatest. Isn't that so relatable? I mean, I look at the disciples, and I'm just like, man, I don't feel so bad about myself now, Right? You ever do that? Is that just me? No, no. And so these it is, it's normal. And so whenever we look at this here, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump in this passage, but let's go ahead and read. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, verse number one, it says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted. ...and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses... For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine an eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Let's go ahead and go, the Lord, in prayer. Lord, we come to you one more time today. Just thank you so much, Lord, for your blessings. Thank you, Lord, for everyone who's gathered here today, Lord, for their desire to uh, fellowship, their desire to uh, partake of your word and to learn from it and to grow in it. And Lord, we just pray that you would work in hearts and lives today and do that which is needed. I pray, Lord, that each person would be uh, encouraged along their way. They'd be drawn closer to you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you just help me to say the things that are needful and helpful and accurate. I pray, Lord, that you keep back anything that I shouldn't say. And Lord, I just pray that if there's one here today that don't know you as their Savior, that today would be the day that they would call upon you and trust you as their Savior. We do thank you and we love you in all these things we pray in Jesus' name and amen. So as Jesus and the disciples are spending all this time walking, and as they are talking, and as Jesus is teaching, the disciples begin to argue. If you look at the parallel passages of this in Mark and in Luke, you find that they are trying to keep this discussion away from Jesus. Jesus is out in the front, and I can imagine him probably shaking his head as he knows what's going on behind him. You know, they're back there, and they're like, I want to be the greatest... If you look at this, I, I was one of the three that was called to go up to the top of the mountain to be with Jesus. I am one of the inner circle. John said, I'm the one who Jesus loves, right? And you start seeing their arguments about why they should be the greatest. And they're pointing out, I did this miracle. I preached this sermon. I did these things. Jesus said this to me, so surely I'm going to be the greatest. Their idea is that Jesus is going to throw off the Roman government and off their tyranny, that Jesus is going to establish his throne, and that his disciples are going to come alongside of him and rule and reign in his kingdom. That is what they are expecting. One day that will happen, but that day has not yet come. Okay, And so this is what they're expecting, and they were squabbling about all of their accomplishments, accomplishments all of the things that made them great. As they were saying, I'm one of the ones that was taken up on the mountain I can imagine the ones down the valley said, yeah, it's because he didn't trust you to leave you alone. (laughs) He had to watch over you. We were down here by ourselves, and they said, well, how did that work for you? Can you imagine the squabbling just because of humanity? This is the kind of things that we do. And so in our minds, what causes us to be the greatest is measured completely different from what Jesus says. If we were to try to decide what we think makes someone great as far as Christianity, what makes someone great in God's kingdom, we measure by completely different criteria than what Jesus does. We look at it and we look at the ones who are the most uh, prominent, the ones who have gained the highest position, the ones who seem to be nailing the Christian life, the ones who seem to be performing well. That's the ones that we look at and think would be the greatest. we probably all had the conversation at times about the, the ones who we would not want to be behind, whatever the rewards are given out in heaven. Yeah. Right? You think about it, can you imagine being behind Apostle Paul? We put him as being one of the greatest, right? And so we're there, the rewards are being handed out in heaven, and we're behind Apostle Paul, and he's got like a a a, a trailer load of rewards that he's hauling away, and I come up and I have a thimble. right? This is the way that we picture it because we are looking at performance. We are very much in a performance based mindset. That's how the world around us works, right. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but Jesus doesn't work according to man's wisdom. He doesn't do things according to the way that the world does. And so as the disciples are trying to quietly have this discussion while Jesus is walking ahead of them leading the way, they get to where they're going. And Jesus says, hey, boys, what was it that you were discussing amongst yourself while we were traveling? And Oh, nothing. It wasn't anything serious. And whenever we read in Mark and Luke, they are trying to push it back. They're embarrassed by what they were talking about. And they don't want to tell Jesus. And so what Jesus does is he draws a child along beside of himself. Because their discussion was, who is going to be the greatest? Jesus pulls up a child, and this would have confused them. Because they are looking for greatness. And whenever you're thinking about greatness in God's kingdom, are you going to be saying, okay, it's Melody? <laughs> you know, that's not what we're looking at because we're looking at, you know, the denominational heads and uh, people who preach sermons and write books and people who uh, have went and pioneered in uh, foreign mission fields and all these, those are the great ones. And Jesus pulls up a child alongside of himself. And he begins teaching this. And a lot of times we try to break down this chapter, chapter 18 into small parts. and We just look at the child here, but this entire chapter, and I didn't read it for the second time, this entire chapter is dealing with what Jesus considers greatness. If you want to be a good Christian, Jesus is telling us what he measures by. He is telling us what criteria he is looking at in order for us to be a good Christian. And I believe all of us, if we're born again, if we're children of God, we want to be good Christians. right? We want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. But usually we are looking at the complete wrong criteria. We are looking at it from man's perspective when we are judging greatness. And so let's look at this here as we go through this passage and find out what Jesus says it means greatness to him. Okay? Everybody ready? I know I'm late, so I want to try to go through this quickly. I'm not going to tell you how many points I have. Anyway, (laughs) the first thing that we find here is he says you must come as a child. You must come as a child. And he is talking about the approach to the kingdom. He's talking about coming and getting in the kingdom at the beginning. The disciples are arguing amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And the first thing Jesus says is before you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to make sure you're in the kingdom. Right? And so he tells them here in verse number three, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom you're wanting to be in the top position, you have to make sure you're actually in the kingdom before you can be the top man in it. Now, this is before Christ has died. This is before uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is still whenever they are trying to figure out what they believe about Jesus. And he says, before you start jockeying for position, you need to make sure you're born again. You need to make sure that you become as a child. And by the way, it's childlike, not childish. Right. There's a huge yeah. difference in that, and for you who are not uh, English as a first language, there's a big difference between childlike and childish. Yeah. And unfortunately, most of us tend to be more childish than we are childlike. Okay, and so he says you have to become as a child. You need to have childlike faith. Whenever you look at a child, he's talking about how you have to come to Jesus to begin with. We don't come with with uh, our our great works and all the great things that we do. We don't come and say, Lord, look at how wonderful I am. Look, what a good person I am. Surely I get into your kingdom. We don't come to him with our works because the Bible says that it's not by righteousness, which we have done, but by his grace that he saved us. The Bible tells us that for by grace are you saved through faith, uh, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Sorry, my brain was leaving me there for a minute. So anyway, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so whenever it talks about coming as a child, look at a child and look at what they are like. A child comes trusting. That's where it starts off with. Whenever Jesus uh, was there talking to the disciples, the child was around somewhere, and Jesus just calls the child over to him, and you know what the child does? The child comes. He didn't have to convince him. He didn't have to manipulate him. He didn't have to try to entice them with candy to get them to come, right? Jesus looked at the child and says, come here for a minute. The child crawls up beside of him, cuddles up against him more than likely because a child trusts. It's not until we become older that we start becoming skeptical and cynical and all these different things that come into our lives. And so whenever you come to Christ, you have to come as a child trusting in him alone. A child's not only trusting, a child has nothing to offer. Yeah. A child has nothing to offer you whatsoever. Child doesn't have a job. It doesn't have a, a house. doesn't have a car. It doesn't have a bank account. doesn't have any way to pay for its way. A child comes fully dependent. Uh, I'll tell you, my children, yes, they may do some things around the house, but we go to a young child, okay? We'll get rid of the other three for just a moment because they don't like to be an example. And we'll look at <laughs> Melody, okay? Whenever Melody comes into the picture here, she has nothing to offer me right? She's not coming and making deals. and we like, She says, I have nothing to offer whatsoever. When we come to Christ, we have nothing to offer. We don't come to him with anything that we can extend to him and say, look, this Jesus, if you let me in to your kingdom, if you let me into your family, this is what I have to offer you. Look at all of my skills and my talents and my abilities. Look at all of my good works. Look at all of these things that I am. Lord, this is what I have to offer you. We come to him and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What little we do have to offer is worthless, right? Yeah. You ever have a child come to you and try to try to barter with you, try to trade with you, and they bring you something that's absolutely of no value whatsoever? Yes. Okay? A child has nothing. I saw a, a, a bit of an experiment uh, this week that was done with a child, and they took about a four- or five-year-old child and, and they set before him 10,000 euros. Okay? 10,000 euros. Banded together, stack of cash, and two Oreos. <laughs> <laughs> four, four two Oreos, two biscuits. Two biscuits. Okay, okay. Two biscuits. So he had two chocolate biscuits, 10,000 10, 10, euros. Okay. And he said, which one do you want? And he said, Of course. Of course.
1: <laughs> biscuits. of course. He said, I want
0: the biscuits. Yeah. He said, Are you sure this is 10,000? I, I want the biscuits. <laughs> okay, well, they're yours. Take the biscuits. See, this is the thing. Children have nothing to offer. And we value things that are not valuable to God. And so whenever we come to Jesus, we must come as children, realizing that we have nothing to offer. We have no value, nothing to increase, uh, increase his wealth, increase his value, nothing to offer him. A child comes and a child is completely dependent, completely dependent. This is different because Uh, Melody, okay, she has nothing to offer me. She has to trust me because I have to provide everything for her. She's completely dependent. See, the thing is, if it's not for me and Les and the things that we're doing for that child, within a short amount of time, she would die. Right? If we're not feeding her, if we're not clothing her, if we're not housing her, all these things, if we're not providing for her necessities, she will not continue because... She has nothing to offer, right? Of course, No value of her own. And so she is completely dependent, and we come to Christ, and we are completely dependent. Whenever we come to Christ, we have nothing to offer. We're not saying, God, look at my works. Look at the good things that I've done. We're coming empty-handed, and we're saying, if I am going to go to heaven, it is going to be based on what you have done, not on what I have done, right? If I'm going to continue to live, it's because you're putting the breath of my body, you are causing my heart to beat. You are causing me to continue to function. And I am only going to live as long as you allow me to live because I am solely and completely dependent on you. If I get into heaven, it's going to be because of what you have done for me. We are completely dependent. Yeah. And we also find that a child is humble. This idea of humility is brought out in the passage as well. A child is humble. They have nothing to brag about. Can you imagine what their brags would be like? You imagine, now as they're getting older, they get to be school age, there might be some things that they boast of. You know, my dad can beat up your dad. You know, like that one. <laughs> but they are humble because they know that they have nothing except for what their father gives them. Right. That they would have nothing if it wasn't for those who were investing and pouring into their lives. They have nothing. And so for us, as we come to Christ, we must come to Him as a child, nothing to offer, completely dependent, in humility, because it is not by right works of righteousness that I have done, but by His grace that He saves us, and trusting in Him alone. Religion all around this world gets this completely wrong, thinking that we have something to offer. It introduces pride into the mix, saying, look at what I have done, look at my good works, look at how religious, look at how whatever it is, but here's the thing. We are as children. If we're going to come to him, uh, Jesus just really, really dumps a cold water on their 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 little party here. Because they are saying, look at how great we are. Look at how well we're performing. We've got to be the ones that are at the top of the stack. And Jesus says, you need to become childlike and stop being childish. Yeah. Right? And so the next thing that we need to do is we need to continue in humility. We come as a child, we continue in humility. In verse number four, it says, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he says, if you humble yourself as this child, the same is the greatest in my kingdom. He is equating humility with greatness. So we come as a child and we have to realize that whenever a child is born, a child knows nothing, can do nothing, right? It's not born into adulthood. Whenever we get saved, we don't have this Christian thing figured out. We don't have it under wraps. We don't know what we're doing. We start off as a babe. The Bible talks about as babes desiring the sincere milk of his word, right? And so basically we are entering in at the bottom. And we have to realize that. We can't allow our flesh to cause us to become pride it up, allow our flesh to cause us to think that we're something just because we are saved doesn't mean that we've got it all figured out. And so we have to remain humble. We have to remain teachable. We have to remain submitted to God and allow him to do a work in our life for him to increase us and for him to use us and for him to grow us. It takes humility. Whenever we start Uh, Becoming arrogant, or we start becoming proud. Essentially, what we end up doing is we push God to the side and say, Okay, God, thanks for saving me. I got it from here. Isn't that how a lot of us live our Christian lives? Okay, God, you got me into heaven. Now, watch, watch what I can do. No, he says, If you want to be great in my kingdom, if you want to achieve greatness as a Christian, remain humble. And so we are. Babes, we are growing. It's a lifelong process that we are entered into. And so instead of it being a ladder for us to climb, it is this pro- for us to climb. It is a life that we live. Okay? Can you all see the, the illustration there of how most of the time as Christians we see it as a ladder to climb? With every victory that we believe that we have won, with every sin that we've overcome. Another rung up the ladder. We're climbing along. Next rung. Next rung. We're just using it as a way to look down on everybody else at how high we've gotten. Right? It's not a ladder that we're climbing. It's a life that we're living. So we stay humble. And now a lot of people are confused about the idea of humility and what humility is. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I'm humble. We've got this song, uh, Amazing Grace, and I'm not... I'm not bashing the song Amazing Grace, okay? But it says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. It's like, yes, I'm a wretch. I'm a worm. And we say it arrogantly. And it's this self-abasement. It's this false humility of thinking less of ourselves as if that is humility. But here's the thing about humility. It is not thinking less of ourselves. It is thinking of ourselves less. Did you catch that? It's thinking of ourselves less. It's not about me, it's about him. And so humility is achieved by not looking at me, it's achieved by looking at him, at serving him. And so we have to remain humble. We have to continue to look to him, not to ourselves. And if you think that you are humble, if you are evaluating your humility, you're not humble. You understand that? Because you're looking at yourself. You ever have anyone that bragged about how humble they were? I've heard it. It's messed up. Okay, so we have to come. Uh, we have to come as a child. We continue in humility. We are careful not to offend. Careful not to offend. It Says in verse number, uh, <coughs> verse number six: Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. And so he is warning about offending. And by the way, I want to give you the right perspective on this. Whenever it's talking about offense, it's not talking about our modern day definition of offending. This isn't talking about you hurt my feelings. This doesn't mean that we have to walk on eggshells to keep from hurting someone's feelings. This word offense in our scriptures is talking about causing someone to stumble. It's causing the, it's this idea of setting a trap before someone, of being a barrier, of being a hindrance to them. And so whenever we are living our Christian lives, too often we feel as if it's okay for us to be arrogant, to be bombastic, to be uh, presenting ourselves in such a way that actually makes us a hindrance to people either coming to Christ or continuing to follow after Christ. And Jesus says, woe unto those who do so. We are to be careful not to offend. We are to be careful that our life isn't going to hinder people from coming to Christ. There's been many times that I've talked to people, and they have pointed to specific individuals in their lives, family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, that claim to be Christians, and they said, if that person is a Christian and acts like that, I want nothing to do with it. You know what that is? That is offense. They have presented a stumbling block before someone else, and that person says, I'm not coming to Christ because of the Christians that I know. Right? And so if we want to be great as Christians, if we want to be good Christians, we should be walking circumspectly in our lives. We should be others minded. We should be looking at our lives and whether or not the way that we are living and the things that we are saying and the things that we practice, we need to look and see if they line up with Christ. We need to look and say, okay, is the way that I am living a hindrance that's going to keep people away from Jesus? That's going to be a hindrance for people to follow Jesus. Am I going to turn them off from following after God? That is a hindrance. And so I need to be paying attention to the effect that my life is having on other people around us. Now, that doesn't line up with what we typically, um, typically look at with uh, being great, is it? The people who are great are the ones that are stomping on everyone as they're climbing the ladder. The ones who are able to just propel themselves by any means possible onto the top. And Jesus says if you want to be great, you're going to be paying attention to the effect your life is having on the people around you. And if you are, instead of drawing people to Christ, if you are pushing them away, that's a problem. Right? And so we need to be careful not to offend. Next thing we've got here. Okay, i yeah, go through this quickly, right? If we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we need to cut off what offend or what hinders. Excuse me. We need to cut off what hinders. We have a very um, poignant picture here. It says in verse number eight, wherefore if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off. If your hand or your foot offend you, cut them off. And that seems a bit extreme, but it's intended to be. What he is saying here is if there is anything in your life that hinders you from coming to Christ or following Christ, then you need to get rid of it. You need to prioritize Jesus above your comfort. You need to prioritize Jesus before your flesh because if there is anything in your life that's keeping you from him, you would be better off to get rid of it in a drastic manner, you'd be better off to get rid of it, as in cutting off your hand or your foot, than missing out on being with Christ. That's, that's extreme, isn't it? And as we are going through our lives and we are thinking that we are excelling well and we are being good Christians because of the things that we are doing, all too often we're allowing things to abide, allowing things to stay in our lives that is a barrier, is a hindrance. To us walking with God. And we value those things above the God we claim to serve. Right? And so if you want to be a great Christian, if you want to be performing well, I hate to use that term, no. in Christianity, you need to cut off what hinders. Resort to extreme measures. If you look at your life, there's all kinds of things that come between us and Jesus. And if we are aware, if we are paying attention in our lives and we are saying, this is something that is hindering my walk with God. This is something that is keeping me from being affected with him. I'm going to get rid of it altogether because I value Jesus above whatever that is. It could be things. It could be addictions. It could be people, but they're keeping us from Jesus. And he says, you're better off to cut it off. Get rid of it if it's hindering you from following me. Next thing that we find here, cancel comparison. This is one that we don't find here in this passage, but if you turn over to Mark chapter 9, parallel passage in this, we find Jesus' disciples just being very relatable, okay? Mark chapter 9, verse 38. This is in the middle of the same conversation, okay? It says, And John answered him. So Jesus is in the middle teaching how to be great in his kingdom. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which can do a miracle in my name, which can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And so in the middle of Jesus talking about this, he's got the child up beside of him. He's going through and teaching these things to his disciples. And John says, hey, i got something to tell you. As we are contending for greatness in your kingdom, we have made ourselves our self-appointed gatekeepers to Christianity. We need to cancel comparison. He's looking around and he's saying they aren't following us. He didn't say they're not following you. He said they're not following us. What was going on at this time was that Jesus had sent his disciples away to preach, to teach, to heal, and different things. And they came back and reported to Jesus, and they were astounded that even the demons were subject unto them. And that's when Jesus says, marvel not that the demons are subject to you, but marvel that your names are written in heaven. Or glory not, I think in it. That's what was going on. And while they were going out away from Jesus, teaching, preaching, doing all these things, they encountered another man that was casting out devils in Jesus' name. And they said, don't do that because you're not one of us. And John thinks that this would be a good time to bring this up. See, what we do as Christians a lot of times is we start going around and comparing. We start looking at every everybody else's walk with God. We start looking at everyone else's ministry. We start looking at the church down the road, at the Christian over at the job site. We start looking at them and comparing, and we start comparing them unfavorably amongst ourselves. We start making ourselves the gatekeeper and saying they can't be of Christ because they don't do it the way that we do. This isn't talking about heresy. and If there's uh, false teachers, whether it be online or around here or whatever. I might warn you and tell you, beware of these guys, because as a shepherd, I warn you of wolves. But that's not what was going on here. He says, these guys aren't following us. They're not doing things just like us. And so we forbade them. If we want to be great in Christianity, if we want to be good Christians, we're going to quit comparing with everybody else. We're going to quit worrying about everyone else. And we're going to worry about our own selves, worry about our own walk with God. We're going to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to do because ultimately they are his servants and it is up to him to do with them what he will. I'm not the gatekeeper of Christianity. I'm not the one that has to go out and call out everyone, correct everyone else. I, I know all the time growing up, okay, I've had a, I've got a brother and this may be a surprise to you, but my brother and I always fought. We fought like cats and dogs. And my dad had a favorite saying. We'd come and we would say, he did this to me, or he did, and my dad would say, if you worry about yourself, you'll have your hands full. You ever heard that any other parents said that? If you worry about yourself, if you look to your own life, you're going to have your hands full. So don't worry about everyone else. And so we have to cancel comparison. We need to, to allow God to deal with his own people. Uh in Romans chapter 4 and verse 14 says who am I to judge another man's servant That's what we end up doing we start going out and critiquing and saying well they don't do it the same way as we do so they must be evil they must, and we use it to justify ourselves because no one's serving God like I am that's messed up and so we need to cancel comparison next thing we need to count value as Jesus does What is valuable? Well, we look at it, we go around and and we evaluate value different than he does. In verses 10 through 14, it says, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them go astray? Doth he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which which is going astray? And if so, be that he find it. Verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Most people would have looked at this and said, okay, what's the deal about going after the one sheep? You got 99 of them still here. Most people, if they are trying to be great in God's kingdom, they're not going to have time for the children. As a matter of fact, in a passage just coming up a little later, uh, there are children that come and are trying to be near Jesus, and they are trying to, the the disciples and different ones, are trying to send the children away, or trying to prevent the children from coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, suffer the little children that they come unto me. How often do we as adults have children that come around it's like go away I'm too busy go away I've got important things to do and we're pushing away the little children we are looking at the 99 and we're not concerned about the one if you continue and I'm not going to read it for the sake of time in verses 15 through 19 Jesus is talking about whenever someone comes to you and offends you when someone sins against you okay well I don't care about them anymore I'm done with them right isn't that how we do things But instead, Jesus says, if there is someone who offends you, go to them, talk to them, work it out, value relationships, value children, value those who are struggling and those who are straying, value those who are outcasts, those who uh, aren't always the ones that religion is going to be seeking after. We talked about that in the first service in, in Corinth and the ones that came to Jesus, right? And Jesus says, I'm not looking at this about who has the the biggest paycheck i'm not looking at this about who has the nicest house i'm not looking at this about who has the most to offer the congregation i'm not looking at this as who has the largest congregation i'm not looking at this who, who does the the most work or who does this or that he says i'm looking at this from a much different scale and the things that i consider valuable is usually not the things that mankind sees as valuable See, the disciples, as they were following Jesus, they never would have thought that the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, was worth going on that trip through Samaria just to speak with her. But Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And if we would be honest, if we would look at it from Jesus' perspective, from God's perspective, to this world who was rebellious, who was rejecting him, who was willing to take him out, to beat him beyond recognition, hang him on a cross and kill him from a human perspective, we would look at the world and we would say, it's worthless. Why would Jesus die for those who hated him? Why would Jesus from the cross say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Why would Jesus be willing to leave his home and glory to come down to die for men like you and me, we see no value, right? But Jesus says, I love them and I value. He looks at things differently, right? And so we're going to be valuing what Jesus values. He values people, not performance, right? Everybody still with me? Mm -hmm. Everybody good? you quiet. <laughs> you're always quiet, but you're quieter than normal. And so Jesus had time for children. He had time for prodigals. He had time for Samaritans and for lepers, for adulterers and adulteresses. He had time for the poor, for the broken, for the rejected, for the hurting, for all the ones that society says are worthless. Jesus says they were worth dying for. Next thing that we find is we're going to be following Jesus. If you want to be great in His kingdom, we need to consider our debt. Consider our debt. Whenever Jesus teaches the disciples here about forgiving their brother, about going to him and seeking after restoration, Peter down in verse number 21, he attempts to be spiritual again. In verse 21, it says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall I forgive my brother sin against me? Or how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. That's charitable, isn't it? You come and you sin against me and I forgive you and you sin against me and I forgive you. You sin against me and I forgive you. You sin against me and I forgive you. You get the point seven times. That's a lot. And so Peter thinks he is being generous. Surely this is going to get me bonus points with God. Surely Jesus will say, oh yes, you're on the right track. Forgiving seven times, that is very generous of you. But instead Jesus gives a parable. And in this parable... There is a man who is forgiven of a large debt by his good master. I'm not going to read it for the second time. But he's forgiven of a large debt by his good master. And then he has someone else that owes him a debt, a small debt. And he refuses to forgive him, right? And so the lesson for us here is whenever we start evaluating our relationships with other people and our how much grace that we will extend, how much we will forgive, how much we will tolerate, we have to back up for a second and say, hold on for a second. Look at how much that God has forgiven me. Right? The example that Jesus gives basically is if you know I owed Peter a thousand euro and I couldn't pay it and he says, I oh, don't worry about it. And then Bruno owes me ten and I come to him and I'm like, give me every cent. That's how we treat mankind. God has been merciful. God has been good. He has been loving toward us. He's been forgiving toward us. He has been patient and kind toward us, and we don't extend that same thing toward other people, do we? We have no patience, no love, no mercy, no forgiveness toward those who would do us wrong, and Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, be mindful of the price I paid for you. Be mindful of how good I've been to you. And that's going to change how you treat other people. Right? You notice all the way through this, it's not greatness the way that we think, but instead it is emulating the life that Christ lived on this earth. It is living according to the way that he lived. It is by caring for others, loving others, being careful not to trip others up, valuing God's uh, will and his opinion of me and doing things to please him. All the way through this, this is what he's saying. In reality, what Jesus is teaching them is if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, all you have to be is a decent human being. And that's a stretch for most of us. So the last thing that we have, you were wondering how far I was going, weren't you? Last thing we have here, and this one might be a little little different, a little weird, but in the passage I read in Mark chapter number 9, Verse number 41, it says, For whosoever shall give you a cup of cold water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. Last thing that I want to tell you is in the kingdom of God, in this Christian life, cups of water count. Cups of water count. What we do in our minds, cups of water count. What we do in our lives is we look for big things. Right? We look for big things. The disciples wanted to be great. As I said, they were probably discussing miracles and uh, that they performed and messages that they preached. But between all of the big things and the big opportunities are tons and tons of little things and little opportunities. And whenever we are striving for greatness, when we are trying to be big and trying to be important, those things are beneath us and are below us. And in reality, that is where the Christian life is at. That's where the important things are. Between all these opportunities, there are small things that we pass up waiting to be important. In Zechariah chapter 4, and verse 10, it says, For who hath despised the day of small things? The people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, were looking at the temple and the rebuilding of the temple, and all of the little things they didn't care about. They wanted to see something big done, and Zechariah came to them and said, Who has despised the day of small things? Jesus told His disciples that even giving a cup of cold water in His name wouldn't be overlooked whenever it came time to reward His children. See, what we do is we start valuing the big things. Unless I'm doing this, unless I'm engaging in that, unless I'm performing at this level, then it means nothing. And at the same time, there are many Christians that are going along and doing the little things and God's keeping count of every single one of them and they will not lose their reward. And so some of us may not be able to do big things. We may feel like our part is unimportant, but God is just as interested in what we perceive as being little as what we perceive as being big. And so ultimately... I guess the best answer to the disciples' question, they said, Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? Really, that that is a dumb question because I'll tell you, the greatest one in the kingdom of God is going to be Jesus. Right? The greatest one in the kingdom of God is going to be Jesus. But if you want to be great in his kingdom, if you want to hear well done, you enter into his kingdom as a child. You continue in humility, it's not about you. You don't cause others to stumble. You get rid of what makes you stumble. You don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Make sure that you're walking with God. You value what Jesus values. You don't forget the price he paid for you. And you don't despise the small things. Follow him in all things, the little and the big. So with that being said, Christ has given us what greatness means according to him. And I believe as Christians, we would do well if we would reevaluate, if we would get a new perspective, if we would see this Jesus' way, and that rather than trying to be great in His kingdom, that we walk according to these principles that He laid out, that we become as children and follow Him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to You today. Thank You for Your blessings. And Lord, for the day that You've given us, Lord, we thank You for these simple truths from Your Word. I know nothing I've said today is profound, Lord, but I pray that it's an encouragement to Your people. Lord, that they would prioritize you, that they would walk with you, that they would see things as you do. And Lord, just help us, Lord, rather than trying to be great, just for us to follow you and allow you to do work in our lives. We thank you so much for all that you do. I pray if there's one person here that doesn't know you as their Savior, that today they would become as a child and by faith come to you and trust in you alone for salvation. And Lord, we thank you for all that you do. And I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. amen.